0: Hello,
1: ben. Yeah, oh, me too. Oh, ben.
0: Ben is here.
2: Dan Benjamin. I'm eating my lunch. <laughs> We're good. It makes for good podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> People love it when you eat. Yeah. People do love it. Um. So. Uh, so how are things? We've been. I, I've been talking to you a lot on the on the Twitter. Yeah. It's and your jerky your jerky issues.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is this the show? I mean, is this? <laughs> this is the show. Man. I don't know. This, this is the yeah. show.
0: Do you have an That's intro? The- do you do an intro, or is it just this? No, we- it's just this. We just okay. say hello to each other. We complain about <laughs> Skype, like like every other podcast right. with two white all guys the- talking. All the great shows.
2: We talk about what we're listening to. We mm-hmm. talk about what we're eating. Um, like uh, you know, just in general, and then also at the time, Don's always mm-hmm. you know making a tea, something mm-hmm. like that. But now this is pretty much how the show goes. And cool. Yeah, surprisingly, sometimes people listen to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? Well, but I mean, some, not not that many though, really. Not that many, and not not very. I, I think they fast forward.
1: Yeah. The, well, they like, have to.
2: You have to to get to the good stuff. But yeah. Um. So this yeah this is pretty much uh, pretty much how we how we do it. Cool. <laughs> Why well, am oh, thrilled to be here?
0: <laughs> we, are, we are thrilled to have you here, Dan.
2: Yeah. D- Dan Benjamin is, is joining us. This is you can tell how professional we are. So we should
0: we should probably explain to our, our food safety listeners who are not listeners of other podcasts besides this one just exactly how important uh, our guest is that we have with us today and how right, important yeah. he is to the podcasting community. We should. <laughs> <laughs> that was me throwing to you, Ben.
2: Oh, that was you throw. Yeah. So, so Dan, um, I don't know if you know this, but do you like? So you know how there's lots of good origin stories out there. Yeah. Don, Don and I really only got into podcasting because you invited us on one of your shows like four years ago.
1: Yeah, I remember doing that. I'm trying to remember. I think were you both on there's it it was either it was either the conversation or the daily edition or the dan benjamin hour it It was was one of those yeah Yeah. it was
0: well whatever it was it was back when you were doing video for the first time and i think that would have been the conversation then yeah i think you 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 had me on once and then Uh we did another show with both of us but maybe the one with both of us was audio only i don't i don't remember now
1: so yeah, it was no. so long ago
0: ancient yeah. history
2: yeah it was it was definitely video at one point that we were both on cuz i remember seeing all of you together um uh, mm. in my in my little screen and we had i don't know if we had, we had told you this but so don and i did this um npr show story thing a story story, story core. core yeah so we were you know we we had this Dan, don and i know each other from the food safety world and our um uh, professional organization was celebrating 100 years, and so one of our colleagues had invited NPR in to do StoryCorps and paired up people to have these 20-minute, half-hour conversations with each other, just about food safety. And and so Don and I went and did this, you know, in a room, and this was <laughs> like I don't know, 2011 or something, yep. and we just um, we just hit it off. It was like a blind date, right? And,
0: and so, so we we call that episode zero,
2: yeah. right? <laughs> and that was it was right after we had been on your video show, and we, right. you know, at the end of it, we we're like, hey, we could probably we could probably do this. And uh, you know, 80, 80 so episodes later, we're still doing it, and it's awesome. I mean, I can't. You know, you you have been. Um, this isn't the, the real Dan Benjamin Hour. It's the Dan Benjamin Hour on food safety talk. But right. you've been sure you, you've been important <laughs> to us um, because it uh, it really gave us this like opportunity to talk to each other. Like so so Don and I knew each other. But 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 every two weeks of the fact that we like get together for an hour and a half and just spout off about the food safety things that we think about and and stuff like that it's 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 helped I, I mean I, I can only speak personally but it's helped me understand my food safety world better by talking it through with dawn and it's better than just doing it on a phone you know, phone conversation, and we put it out there,
0: and 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 people and people seem to like it. But but again, you know, and not not to make too big a thing of it, Dan. But what you've done at Five by Five and and all of the the podcasts that you've been involved with and that you've inspired have really been an inspiration to us. So we just I, we just want to say thank you.
1: Well, you guys are way too sweet, and you're way too kind, and you give me too much credit. But uh, you you have done the same thing uh, for me in the sense. <laughs> making it so that I can't eat beef jerky. (laughs) I'm now, I have a heightened awareness of, of germs, which is bad for my OCD. And, uh, and, and I understand a lot more about the
0: risks of having children. So in the same way that I have
1: done things for you, you guys have done things
0: for me. Well, and let's just be clear. It's, it's only Ben that has ruined beef jerky. And, and I've tried (laughs) to help you with some of your germ issues, Dan. (laughs) You have, have, and, and. And I I will say that uh, I would like to thank both of you in a
1: more sincere way because I think this is the kind of thing that your show in particular is something that I think really really sums up what's great about podcasting because nowhere else in the world could you have content that's as targeted as the kind of content that you can do in podcasting. This show, which is entertaining to people who I, I suspect are very serious about uh, germs and diseases, they, they come to you guys and they are entertained and they get to follow along. And then there's also people like me who are just sort of afraid of germs who might also be listening. And this is an audience, which while not incredibly large, I would think that you, you're one of the only people, you guys are the only people who are providing content in this space in this way and it's content that people can just come here. They can enjoy it. They listen when they want. They can binge listen if they want. They don't have to pay for it. And where else in the world would they be able to go to get this kind of... This particular brand of entertainment, right? Like this This would never be on the radio for sure. This would never... They wouldn't be able to like tune into Spike TV and watch, you know, the two of you guys sitting down on a couch talking about this. Like only podcasts can deliver this. Only this particular medium can cater to so many different kinds of audiences. And you guys are very much pioneers in that sense of like, you're, you know, there's an audience might not be huge, but there's a real audience out there. People who are like curious about, you know, throwing up or whatever. And like, they can tune in and and listen and share. And, you know, you've got to think that like, there are not that many people like you out there in the world. And it is kind of, I'm, I'm not joking when I say this, like, it would be kind of difficult to be able to be a part of this community. Like I remember back in the early days of the web and even the early days of of what we think of as web development, that is writing writing web applications, designing websites, what we used to call database-driven websites. And I was like the only person that I knew doing it. I didn't have a community. And maybe that's because I didn't live in San Francisco or I didn't live in New York or wherever the the meccas at the time for making, doing web development were, I was in Orlando, Florida. And like, I knew one other guy who was a designer and, and, and he was like pure graphic design. Like he would do stuff in Photoshop and that was it. And like there, there wasn't a community for me to be a part of because of where I lived and because of the technology. And I I think a lot of your listeners are probably like, you know, maybe they know one or two people at work, but they might be the only person doing the kind of stuff that, that you guys do, I don't know, maybe that's, that's not right. But in any case, you guys are providing a valuable service to, to the community that you're helping create. So bravo to you. Cool. Well, Thanks. thanks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dan. I mean, we, we do it, you know, I think like, you know, because we like to talk to each other and, and as we've, as this thing's grown over the last four or five years, we, we get these cool little stories where someone says, you know, I, we, we throw your podcast on in the lab when we're doing microbiology type things and listen to the stuff that, that you guys talk about. And it, and that, that's the the kind of stuff, uh, you know, at least for me that really drives us to do more of it. Like it, yeah. it it's, it's, you get this, this really cool feedback and, and the, the community side of it is, it, you know, is, is some like secondary benefit that that we that we I don't know if it if we're you know part of creating that, but it's it's cool to get that that feedback every once in a while. That people are like,
1: yeah, this is this this stuff matters to us, and we're listening to it. So, who is a listener of this show? Like, paint a a, a stereotypical demographic picture of the person who's listening to to us right now. Like, who is that person? Because, like, I could do it for, like, if you were to say, oh, who's a back to work listener or who's a Dan Benjamin Hour listener? Or, we like, I could, I could give you a picture that would be pretty correct of, of, of who that person might be. So who's listening to the show right now?
0: Well, I would say it is probably someone. I mean, we we try we try to make the show accessible to people who are not food safety professionals, but I would say by and large, <clears throat> our listeners are food safety professionals. So right. this is someone whose day job somehow relates to food and food safety. Maybe right. they are a chef manager at a university. Maybe they work in the food industry in quality assurance. Maybe they are a public health inspector. Mm. Uh, maybe they are a university. Uh, they are graduate. I know there's a bunch of graduate students who are who are f- graduate students in food science probably doing food microbiology food safety research okay. there are people who are university professors food safety university professors like Ben and myself um, we have uh, a guy who's a former um, food industry person who's now uh, consulting uh, out on his own uh, that the, he's, he's been on the show before and is also a listener um, so those are that's sort of our, our target uh, demographic or the people that have selected to 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 listen to the show,
2: and that's and pretty it, cool. Yeah, and every once in a while, someone else kind of stumbles upon us. Like it's not someone from our our world. Like all you know, all the, all the folks that, that Don talked about are are largely the the people that in our day to day work, as we go out and um, interact with the food industry or or other educators in face to face type settings mm-hmm. um, that that we we see. But every once in a while, we'll get this like person who sends us a, a, you know, a comment of, you know, I I just was interested in food safety from a consumer standpoint. You guys have really um, answered some of my questions or, or highlighted things that I didn't even know I, I, I should think about.
1: But see, I I think that's really cool though, because like you do have this very interesting kind of community of listeners that is, it, it, it really is just like that. What other show would all of those people come together to listen to? So how do you challenge how do you challenge your listeners? What are you giving them each week that that they can't get anywhere else? Beef jerky talk. Yeah, yeah. Do they know the story of how you how you guys? Well, I'm, I'm crediting both of you now. I've, ben, ben and I have never. Can I call you Ben? Uh, you can. You, yeah, you. Ben and I have never met. That's in right. Person. No. But Don Don and I have hung out many times, usually for barbecue.
0: Many, 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 many times, both, many both, t- both of many times. Both yes. times.
1: And, uh, we have, we have Don's phone number here. <laughs> he's, he's a,
2: so, um, food safety expert to the podcasting stars. Yes. Yeah, so like the- whenever
1: we have a question, we will, we will text him. And usually it's about my, uh, sales director, Hattie, uh, will have bought food and will have neglected to eat the food for a period of days and we'll have usually sometimes she leaves it out other times she will say that it's in her refrigerator and we usually will, will text on and say she will do it or sometimes if if she's about to eat the food and i feel like it's unsafe and she said well i'm going to eat it anyway i'll say well then i'll text on and uh, and so we text him i would say once every couple of weeks can and we have the a little a little can can is this safe to eat? Can she still eat this conversation?
0: And and Where what you, is it? what you what you don't know Dan is yeah. usually I will capture those those text bubbles and I will I will text them to Ben. So he is really? he is aware yeah. at least of some of these conversations.
1: I like well, I like them. Well years ago Ben uh, and I were talking and he told me not to eat beef jerky the way I was doing it anymore and Since then, we haven't had a lot of contact for obvious reasons.
2: Right, because I've ruined... I'm the the jerky police.
1: Yeah, the the jerky police. (laughs) So I don't know which we should talk about first, but there's another issue that I have for follow-up, which is that both of my kids had a stomach virus. One of them got it from his school and brought it home and then gave it to my daughter, but neither my wife and I have come down with it yet, knock on wood. So I want to talk to you about this because I have lots of questions about how these things are spread, uh, about aer- aer- aerosolized particles. I have so many questions, and I don't know how you want to handle this. It's your show, but you tell me what, how I can help.
0: Well, yeah. So we should we should definitely. So Ben and I have talked about this before. Actually, we're going to link in show notes. We're going to link to an episode, um, Food Safety Talk thirty seven called "Inoculating the Plane," uh, where Ben talks about a, a, an incident where he and his uh, son were sitting at the back of the plane, and and his son was sick, and so right. the the solution to that was. As soon as they landed, to basically take Ben and his kid all the way through the entire plane, uh, <laughs> spewing particles um, uh, to inoculate the plane. Um, and also, there's also a great story that that I've told before on the podcast. that I'll tell again, um, which is when. So my kids are grown, but when my kids were young, we went uh, and visited my grandparents, who have since passed away. And at the time, so we were there. It was it was myself, my kids. Uh, my ex, my parents, and um, my mom's parents. And our kids got sick with some sort of a stomach flu. It flew, and again, it was coming out in both ends, right? Like puke and, and vomit. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone else was fine. I was fine. My ex was fine. My parents were fine and of course my 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 ex and i were the ones handling the primary containment of 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 the germ particles and maybe my mm-hmm. mom was helping a little bit my grandparents were nowhere near you know any of that right but we were all in the same house and then within a day or two the only people that got sick were my grandparents right and so so the question is why did they get sick and they weren't involved in any of this you know containing any of these you know any of these germs and the issue i think really has to do with immune systems and one of the things unfortunately as we age is our immune systems uh, decline and so so you know that's good that people are young when they have kids because they have relatively healthy immune systems that probably explains why even though your kids are sick, um, you didn't get sick and, and your wife didn't get sick. But you know this is an issue, right? And so uh, you know, and, and it's something that's important in food safety too. We had an outbreak a number of years ago of listeria in cantaloupe, and a majority of the people that got sick and, and even died from that outbreak were elderly people. Who, gosh, they right. love cantaloupe, and they're also uh, uh, resistant or less less resistant to, to things like listeria. So, whenever you're talking about illness and 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 getting sick, again, as a guy who does risk modeling. as as my job, I always think about probabilities. Right. And so what's the probability of, you know, this feces being positive for a virus and what's the probability it's going to transfer to my hands and what's the probability with hand-washing I'm going to get it off my hands and what's the probability that it's going to spread to the air and then what's the probability it's going to land on your hands and then what's the probability you're going to touch your hands to the mouth, your mouth and then what's the state of your immune system and that affects the probability of illness. And so really it's all, it's all probabilities. And so, you Never have anything that's completely risky or completely safe, but you, but there are things that you can do all the way along. And whether whether it's a recipe for cooking beef jerky or how right. you handle your vomiting kid, um, you know, to a certain extent, it's out of your control. And to a certain extent, it's like it's not it's not like it's not a bright line between safe and unsafe. It's more like well, I'm going to do this thing to try to reduce the risk by this amount, and then this other thing to reduce the risk. And again, eventually, um, you reach a, a situation where you can say yes, it's relatively safe. So that's that's kind of my. T- take on on kids and 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 diarrhea
1: okay so let me okay
0: i'm sorry please
1: no 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 and the the only thing
2: that i'd I'd add to to what don said is that probability um immune system wise also you know what's the chance that the person who is coming in contact with whatever that pathogen is has their body has seen it before and that they have antibodies to it or if it's something new um and, and so this this Immune system thing has its own, you know, as Don kind of characterized it, it's got its own complexities uh, around it that are going to dictate what the likelihood that even if that person ate a whole bunch of Listeria-laden cantaloupe, that right. maybe they're not even going to get sick. You know, we just... Okay, we... so
1: so let me... Okay. Pause. <laughs> I, I would like to talk about all of these things... With you, but I would like to frame them in a couple of real-world examples because everything that you're saying makes makes perfect sense. But there's a couple things. I remember. Okay, now my grandfather was a metallurgist, and he worked for the uh, for the U.S. government for the war effort back in the day, and his job was to design anti-ballistic armor plating for like tanks and stuff like that. This is one of the things he worked on. So his goal was to make armor plating that would go on something. And he used to talk about these things that like, they are, all, of course, all, all kinds of fancy terminology for it, metallurgy and things like that, ballistic stuff. But he would design stuff so that, like, for example, if you had, I don't know what the guns were back then. I'm not like a, a, a war buff or anything. But let's say you had like a machine gun, an AK-47, whatever they were running around with there shooting. You could shoot at this thing, this armor, all day long, at any range, and it would never damage the armor never never could penetrate through the armor you could shoot at this thing all day you could get a hundred guys with ak-47s all shooting at it never make it down because you had to have some kind of uh ballistics that were more powerful than whatever an ak-47 or an unlimited number of ak-47s could could throw at this does that make sense yeah so that no matter how many AK 47s you had lined up shooting at this thing is fine. But if you bring out, I don't know, again, I think this is a technical term, a bazooka and you point the bazooka at the, now then you're going to do some damage to it. And then you get into different things like how far away were you and how much force was there and how much was lost and what then it actually matters. But with the AK 47 doesn't matter. So let's start with this. If let's say this thing that my kid brought home, Let's say, and we can, we can get graphic on this show, right?
2: Oh yeah. This is, uh, this, this we're this, safe here. We're safe. This, this is a safe, okay. safe place for graphic. among
1: friends. Let's say that my kid projectile vomited directly into my mouth. This did not happen, but let's just <laughs> say yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. It, and, and I, and I was surprised and I inhaled it and I swallowed it and it's full on. I don't know how much more it could be in my system than this. However that happens, it's there. It's on everything. It goes in my eyes everywhere. I'm coated with it, let's say. Are you telling me that if I'm immune to this because I have antibodies, because I've had this before, that even that kind of exposure is like the AK-47s? I cannot get sick from that? I mean, it may gross me out, but is that what you're saying, that I, if I have the right antibodies, even that kind of exposure, I'm still fine?
2: It, it could be. I mean, and it's all this probability. It could be that that yeah you could get just a massive dose of a pathogen that your body's okay to deal with and it may not even just be the um it may not just be related to immune system we you know we keep coming back to listeria because it's it, it's one of these pathogens that really affects two groups differently you know as don mentioned the elderly and pregnant women and it has to do with how the body changes with age and when someone's pregnant, that makes their cells more susceptible to infection from that pathogen. So if if the three of us, and we're in you know decent health, ate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cells that that there was a bunch of Listeria vomit that ended up in my mouth from my kid, you know, like, like your example. I still might not get sick from listeria. I might get something else, but it might not be that direct link. There's, you know, our bodies are, are are pretty good at keeping lots of stuff out. But it's also, I mean, from a from the groups that we work with, you know, someone like like uh, a, a, a a place that sells deli meats like Subway, they right. can't sort of like play that risk, right? Like they can't say, well, we know that, uh, you know, that we know that some pregnant women are going to come in here and eat this, um, this deli meat and they're at higher risk, but the majority of the people that eat here are not pregnant. So let's not worry about listeria in our deli meats. Um, and so, yeah, these, these things, there's all these, it's, it's all these calculations. And this is, you know, what, one of the things that, that I enjoy talking with Don about, because it's given me a much greater appreciation of this. None of this stuff when it comes to biology of pathogens is black and white. It's all about reducing
1: risk right. and changing right. those probability calculations. So, so, yeah, you could... I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. It's also, my understanding is like the cold and influenza and things like that are constantly evolving. That's why we need a different flu shot every year. Uh, we can't just have one. But if you're, my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, please, is that if, if let's say that you're unfortunate enough to, you, you, you get the flu and I, I don't know which one it is, it doesn't, doesn't matter, you get this one kind from this one year. If somehow you're re-exposed to that same flu next year, if that one's still kicking around somehow and it hasn't changed at all, it's the very same one, your body knows how to fight that, and in theory you wouldn't, you wouldn't get sick, right? But it, is, it, is it because these things are always changing? Like how is it possible that my seven-year-old son got some kind of uh, stomach illness from school that I have immunity to. How could I have gotten this thing already? Like, do these things stick around like that? Are they that long? Because every year we need a new flu uh, vaccination if we're doing that. You know how come? How could I be
0: immune to this thing that I doubt I ever really had before? Well, here's the thing. So Im- I- immunity is complicated, and I would also say that that Ben and I are are not experts on the immune system, but we probably both had a class in immunology or a class that had a, a lecture on immunology. So with that, right. with that as a disclaimer, let me let me talk a little bit. So so flu shots are an interesting one because, like you said, the flu virus does mutate every year, and the you can't we can't make uh, uh, a flu shot that it has you know that that has all the different possible viruses and so the people that make the the flu vaccine, they they make a bet a best guess as to what they think right. are going to be the strains that are going to be relevant. They 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 make those, and then then that's what we get immunized against. And of course, those have different severities, and and they may be right, they may be wrong. So they, they again they try to hedge their bets and, and come up with the right ones. Um, that said, there are other organisms that don't mutate as fast as the flu virus, and so once you get an immunity to it, you you are um you are then uh, resistant to that essentially for life. Now, again, I'm not an expert on, on the immune system, but th- that, that may also fail over time, right? As you get older, remember the story about my, my elderly grandparents, they probably at one point, if they were younger, their immune system would have responded and, and would have ramped up and, and taken care of that. So again, I mean, so the, 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 the two things that I like to say about, about food safety are, you know, it, it depends and it's complicated, right? And so, and, 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 those, and those both apply in this situation.
1: Okay. All right. So I have in front of me, uh, because I was, you know, I was preparing for this show, despite the way that it seems. And I have in front of me uh, a copy of um, the Infection Control and Prevention Standard Precautions document. It's available. Uh, it comes out through the through the CDC and, and things like that that breaks down things like, you know, hand hygiene and standard precautions and tran- transmission-based precautions and things like that. That, that kind of walks you through all of these different things. And like, I remember when people in restaurants who were preparing food, all of a sudden started to wear these, uh, these gloves that they would, they'd put these on these little sort of uh, ill fitting plastic see-through gloves that they started to put on and they would go in and, and like, you'd feel really good about this, you know, but then they wouldn't follow the proper procedures. So here they are. Let's, let's use, I'm not going to say it's, it's Subway, but let's just say it's, it's a sandwich shop because I don't remember if, I don't think it was a Subway. It was just a place where they're going and, you know, they're like, they got the, the meat there and they're getting your, your cold cuts and they're putting them on your thing. And they put the, you know, mayo. You want any mayo? Yeah. You want any mustard? Yeah. The is. Okay. So they make the sandwich for you. They wrap it up. Then they walk over and they start ringing up the register still wearing the gloves. Now they should have taken like the gloves off, things like that. And you think, there's so much trust involved when it comes to having human beings prepare food for you in a, that, of course, mistakes will be made and things will happen. And I, told, I think I told you guys on a show once that I had gone to a taco restaurant here in Austin where tacos are everywhere. I'd gone to a taco restaurant and they, they prepared the food. And both me and my friend who, who were there Both of us got sick after that. And apparently, you know, I read on Yelp, other people had even gotten sick during that time period from the taco restaurant. Is it because somebody in the back room making the food is sick and didn't properly wash their hands? Because I'm leading up to a contagion topic that I want to bring up with you guys. Is that the issue? Or is it something in the food That had nothing to do with the handling of the food at the level of preparation in the kitchen. In other words, should I be blaming the restaurant or should I be blaming the restaurant's food supplier or somewhere down the chain? Was it the, the, the cook in the back who went to the restroom, didn't properly wash their hands? Or was it before it even got to the restaurant? was the food maybe spoiled? Was it not cooked all the way through? Was it in the farm where it happened? you know Is it
0: ever possible to know well so it's complicated and it depends right and and the and the thing is it could be any of those things and and if you so so one of the the, the resources that we use a lot as inspiration for this podcast is a blog uh, that that Ben is one of the, the the primary bloggers on called barf blog and if, you, if you're a regular reader of BART blog, and, and many of our listeners are, what you'll see is uh, all of those different scenarios. So sometimes it is an outbreak at a restaurant and it is linked to ill workers at that restaurant. And so if it's ill workers at the restaurant, yes, that is certainly <clears throat> partly the responsibility of the restaurant because the restaurant should have a practice of sending ill workers home and not allowing them to contact food. Now, you know, the, the, the restaurant industry is, uh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's it's complicated at at best, and and certainly if a worker knows that they'll be sent home without pay, they have an incentive to hide the fact that they have diarrheal sure. illness. Um, on the other hand, if they uh, know that they can be sent home um, and and get pay, um, uh, then they might be inclined to uh, lie about whether they're really sick or not. So so that's complicated. Now there also are outbreaks that are linked to. Um, um, Multiple restaurants, and we've seen leafy green outbreaks linked to restaurant chains, for example, and and those are linked to a problem on the farm or in the in the packing house where that lettuce becomes contaminated. Um, mm-hmm. In some cases, we have enough good epidemiology to be able to trace things all the way back to the farm. That's relatively rare, and if you if you That's follow amazing, well, it is. But if you follow the CDC statistics, what you find is that about uh, half of the time we have outbreaks, and we don't know, even know what caused it. We can't even tell you what. Organism, and so it sort of spans the range from yes, we figure this one out to gosh, we got no idea.
2: And 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 it comes back to that we don't know kind of situation with your very real example at home with vomiting children. It's possible, and this this may send you off uh, into head explosion areas but it's it's entirely possible that the thing that made your kid sick is something that we don't even know like it's it's right. a pathogen that we have not identified we haven't we we you know we we just don't know and there, and there's so much in our world of infection and food safety that we just assume that you know half the stuff out there that causes people to get sick we we don't even we've never even identified the pathogen like like literally it doesn't we don't know what that bug looks like from a biological right.
1: standpoint Right, right, right. No, I mean, that actually makes a lot of sense to me because I've had things where, and again, usually I was never, I don't want to say never, but once every few years, I might get a cold or something, you know, have a stomach thing. Very rarely until I had school age kids who went to school and came back and bring all this stuff back. And it's always kind of interesting as far as when do I get sick? When will my wife get sick? And when will you know, the, the, one of the two siblings also gets sick. It, there, it it doesn't seem to make sense why some things will all get other things. Only the one person gets when, and you know, we've, we've really, unless it's me that's sick and I get it first, you know, it's almost impossible to prevent the contact that goes on in our house. Like I can absolutely and have quarantine myself And be like, okay, I'm sick. I'm going to be in this bedroom here. (laughs) I have, you know, uh, I have a laptop in there. If I need to communicate with the outside world, just don't, no one go in there until I'm, I'm a lot better, you know, and reducing exposure has worked. It has, it has made it so that no one else gets it. But when one of the little ones gets it, like it's, I'm not going to not touch my kid. You know what I mean? Right. They want to hug goodnight. Like I'm not going to, well, can't, can't hug your son. Sorry that my three-year-old daughter wanted a, a hug. I, nope, I won't do that. So we try to, you know, wash hands and things like that. So let me get to this, let me get to this scenario that happened that's very real. Uh, my my son had a normal day, everything was fine. He mentioned offhand, he mentioned someone threw up in the lunchroom today. So right away, I'm my natural instinct is to withdraw him from the school permanently. Right. And, uh, and and you know, begin homeschooling. But sure. Perfectly you know, normal response. A, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, but this is the kind of thing I read about it, and I found that other people uh, haven't done that. that well, might... it's,
2: and it's too late, probably, because he's been
1: exposed. True. You're right. <laughs> that's true, too. But I, I, not everyone would immediately remove and withdraw their no. kid from, from school and begin homeschooling. So I said maybe that was a little bit of an overreaction. Let's keep him in the school. And see what he can do, you know, if, if it happens again, maybe then we, do, we go to that. will be our next course of action. But leaving him in the school. So he, I didn't think anything of it, but I made a little mental note. So then a couple of days later, everything was fine. He goes to bed. A couple hours after he goes to bed, he wakes up and he says, I'm nauseous. And I said, okay, so, you know, you go and hang out with him. Now, meanwhile, my little one, she's, she's four, had a cold. And she had uh, already by this point given me the cold. And I wasn't sure if he was saying his throat was hurting or if he was nauseous or if he was combining the two because I don't know about you guys, but I found that that seven-year-olds are not the best at clear, straightforward symptom identification and description. I don't feel good is a lot of the time the most I'll say.
2: I, I I usually um, with my children because I'm also heightened around this um, yeah. area. I say things like, "Are you going to puke now?"
0: And,
2: <laughs> and they say, "Sometimes I think so," and then I manage that. And then other times, uh-huh. they say, "No, no, I'm not going to puke right now." Uh huh. <laughs> so I found that that works.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna use that. I am so gonna use that. Well he, he was saying, you know, I think my throat is hurting. I said, Oh, do you think you have the same thing that, that me and your sister have? And he's like, I don't know. I said, well, I'll tell you what, stand by the sink here in the bathroom just for a minute and I'll go get, you know, we have these, uh, like little, you know, homeopathic stuff works even better on my kids because there's this massive placebo effect. So I said, okay, I'll go and get Some, one of these things, I don't even know what it, what it was. Maybe the one that helps you sleep. Maybe the pain one. I don't know. I said, I'll go get you this. So I'm on my way to go get them that. And I hear him start throwing up into the sink.
2: Oh, so you needed the, are you going to puke right now?
1: That would have, that would have saved me. Yeah. So I, I run back in and he's, you know, he's throwing up into the sink and it, it, it's, I don't know what your, your terms are for the different kinds of the puke. But it was what I would call, it seemed to be fully, I mean, it's, again, scientific terms that I don't know if your audience is going to be familiar with, fully masticated and mostly digested, like an oatmeal. But he hadn't eaten oatmeal. It was whatever food. I guess there's a stage. And, again, I looked this up before the show. There's a stage where all digested food looks like oatmeal. And that's where this was. So this is coming back up filling the sink with it multiple times. Now, I'm a guy and my theory is if it fits down the drain, it's fine. You know, we have right, this. Right. If if, it, if you can turn the water on and it just eventually will go down the drain, good. We don't need to do anything. We're done here. But my wife comes in and and she looks at this and she's like, why did you have him do this over the sink? And I said, I didn't ha- have him do it. I just had him stand by the sink as a." Fail safe, better than the carpet, right? She's like, right. yeah, it was better than the carpet. So the when he when he was uh, throwing up, I was n- an arm's length away, kind of comforting him, you know, my hand on his back, kind of helping him deal with it, com- moral support more than anything else for him. And the whole time that I'm there, I'm thinking, you know, Don's talked to me about aerosolized particles, There was this article I read that said that if you're exposed not so much to the sick person, you can mitigate that, but you're exposed to the vomit. I was exposed to the vomit. I was totally exposed to it. And I'm thinking, you know, just in the other room, I've got these masks that I got for uh, if I ever get sick with the flu, I'm going to wear it in the house so I don't get them sick. And I could just get one, of them, but it's too late. I've already inhaled this because if I can smell the vomit, which I could... I've inhaled the vomit. I've already inhaled it. It's inside. It's part of me now. So I just hung out. And, uh, and then my wife comes in and notices all the vomit is in there. And she's like, well, we can't leave it there. I'm like, yeah, go right down the drain. She's like, you can't do that. I said, why not? It'll go down. The, it's gone. Once you out of sight, out of mind. And she's like, no, it, we have to. So she goes and gets a big bowl and a spoon like a ladle, right? And she begins, this is okay for your show, right? I'm totally grossed
0: out, but this is just fine. Yes,
1: She ladles our seven-year-old son's vomit into the bowl and then transferred that into the toilet. Now, I was not grossed out. I have a very good resistance to this kind of thing now. I don't know if it's because I have young kids still, There's almost nothing now that could gross me out. I'm fine with it. I'm more considered like if I was going to undertake that task, I would have put the mask on. I would put protective goggling. I would use, I have uh, the latex gloves. I keep those, you know, a box of those handy. I would have done it like this. Uh, You know what you guys would call, uh, what what would you call this? Airborne precautions, a droplet precaution. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Full, full PPE. (laughs) Yeah. Full PB is what we were talking about. I would have donned or, you know, Doff is taking off, right? I would have donned the whole suit. I would have done this whole thing. She just did it like that. I'm like, well, obviously she's going to get sick now. She did not get sick so far. I've not gotten sick. My three-year-old, four-year-old now she got sick and she threw up really mild a couple times in the morning, took a nap, wakes up from the nap. Six hours later, she's back to normal. She's eating, eating a hamburger. So that's my story. And here's what I'm saying is she was throwing up uh, yesterday. When do I know that I'm in the clear? How long is this stuff living on the surfaces in my house? I've been washing my hands. My hands are completely uh, cracking now. I'm trying to use this hand gel to help moisturize. But, like, when can I feel safe in my own home again?
0: Well, Dan, I'll let you in on a little secret. You're never safe, right? Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And it's complicated and it depends, right? So so the, these organisms have a certain ability to survive on surfaces for a certain amount of time. And again, it's really a probability, at least that's the way I look at it. It's a probability game. So every certain, you know, every time interval, there's going to be a probability it's going to go down by such and such. And so the risk goes down over time, but it's not like you, have a, you reach a, a magic level and it's like, okay, it's definitely safe. And, of course, it depends upon the nature of the organism. It depends upon how many were there. If you got only a few there, then that surface is going to be, quote unquote, clean in a shorter amount of time and if you got a massive dose there. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is, you know, just follow good precautions, certainly washing your hands is good. If you're washing your hands to the point where they're getting cracked and, and bleeding and broken... That's normal day that's, for me. Though. I mean, that's <laughs> not good. So, you know, use a, use a hand sanitizer, um, you know, it's it, so it sounds like, you know, and at some point you just have to say, well, you know, it's just going to be what it's going to be. I'm going to do my very best, but at the end of the day, it's like, I can't, you know, you can't live in a full... In a full body suit, um, and you're just gonna have to trust that you're probably okay. It gets really good news that neither you nor your wife got sick on that initial exposure, and that's probably a good thing. It's a good thing that your daughter um, got over it so so you know in such a rapid way. And again, every every each person is different, but then your susceptibility with age gets different. There's some diseases that if a kid gets it, it'll be super mild, and then if an adult gets it, it'll be really really bad. So it mm-hmm. sounds like you came through it. Okay. Um, and, and, and yeah, and, and whether it was the right thing to do to scoop that stuff out and put it down the toilet or whether you run it down the, the sink. I mean, again, yeah. I'm with you. If, if it went, if it would go down the sink, put it down the sink and let's minimize the moving it around. Right. Let's <laughs> move that stuff around. I,
2: I figured you'd just move at that. That's what, how I would it. we just, yeah. like the house is up for sale.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the inclination It's a scorched earth kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, mar- marriage is about compromise.
2: Right, right, right. Well, so we, we stay. And here's, here's one, one other thing to, to throw at, at you. you. know, we, Don and I look at a lot of the foodborne illness pathogens. And if this is something that um, if, if it was something like norovirus, um, yeah, maybe, maybe you all get it. Maybe you don't. But it could be something like rotavirus which is a um, a virus that affects lar- you know, kids largely, and we've we've all probably had it um, and have have some immunity to it. And so each of these, you know, not to go too much on Don's depend- depends, um, but each of these viruses, it, it, it really depends on that is going to dictate what the probability is that, that you guys are going to get sick. But it it certainly sounds like you you're managing it the best you can.
1: Is there a better way? Is there something obviously moving it around? Probably ill-advised, but is there something that we as listeners of your show could, should kind of be keeping in mind? Like, let's say your kid comes home and you notice runny nose. Maybe they're sneezing a little bit. They, they don't have a fever. It just looks like a cold. Is there any way you can just not get it? And I've heard World Health Organization... Has written about the importance of getting good sleep, of getting vitamin D, especially naturally from the sun. But if you can't, taking a vitamin D three like supplement. These kinds of things, uh you know, like are are they are are we approaching this from the wrong angle? Of yeah, obviously we want to like wash our hands and stuff. But what if we were getting like eight hours of sleep every night and good activity and sunshine? And you know, is that another way to combat this stuff, or is that are they over inflating the real importance of that when when dealing with trying not to get sick?
0: Well, I think the short answer, Dan, is we don't really know, right? Like we know that, yes, if you are, one of the things that can compromise your immune system is lack of sleep. Another thing that mm-hmm. can compromise your immune system is a poor diet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that can, can, can make your immune system, um, you know, get overwhelmed is getting exposed to germs. So, you know, another thing is not getting exposed to enough germs. And so, you know, it's... Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, you you need you need if if you have never been exposed to a particular germ, then your immune system's going to be what they call naive, right? And so if and if you are if you if you've never seen that particular microorganism, um, you're going to get sick from it. And this is again the thing about like if kids are exposed to a, a particular organism, they're going to have mild illness, and adults if they get exposed to it, if they never were exposed as a kid, they're going to have severe illness. So. Um, you know, I I think I hate to say it, but it sounds like you're doing everything as good as you possibly can and I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure that there's there's too much that I would recommend that you do differently. I don't know, Ben. Do you have no,
2: anything? No, I I don't. And and I, you know, ultimately there's going to be a chance that you get sick. I mean and, and I, I think this is where a lot of our stuff delineates. You know, Don and I are, are often thinking about how do we keep pathogens out of the food supply? And so these management practices are about keeping exposure, you know, keeping people from, from contaminating. And if it is contaminated, we do stuff about it. But when when a pathogen is in your home, whether it comes in on food or whether it comes in and, you know, really in this situation in somebody and then there are events like vomit and diarrhea, Right. It, it's hard. I mean – it, the best you can do is is you know make sure that hygiene uh, is good, keep your immune system healthy, um, and then uh, and then hope that that it doesn't you know root. But I you know I've, I've got two young kids and and Don's had a, a couple of kids who are older now, and um, I just you know I just assume that at some point my kids are going to make me sick with something. I had. Um, I actually went the other way with this um, maybe six years ago when my my now almost seven year old son was was just uh, under a year and I had something called Campylobacter. Mm. And I got sick and didn't get better and um, went to the doctor after about a week and then got some antibiotics. But in the interim, I was you know, this is a safe place. So I had really bad watery, diarrhea Mm. for probably five or six days and my son at that time was really like into you know walking around bathrooms and and we tried to keep him out of our, our our bathroom where a lot of my diarrheal events were happening but sometimes I got caught short and had to use another bathroom and um the pathogen, you know, came in from me, and he got he got sick um, uh, a week later from it. And we went through all the stool culture and confirmed it as Campylobacter, the same as the same as what I had. And and so once the the you know, what we're talking about here, are secondary infections. Right. Once it gets into these closed areas, it's really hard to get the you know to get the pathogen out. This is why we have problems with cruise ships. Or retirement. Right, right, right. I mean, it's, it's the same concept. It's a lot of people, a lot of bathroom events in a small space, um, and and it's it's just difficult to to limit. Um, Limit exposure,
0: and we've we've had norovirus outbreaks at uh, Boy Scout camps where you know sanitation may not be the great. It's hard to sanitize a wooden picnic table, for example. We've had norovirus outbreaks at universities every time the you know the norovirus season comes around. I I always reach out to my colleagues at Rutgers and I say, hey, look, guys, what's your plan for when 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 a norovirus outbreak strikes Rutgers because it's going to happen, right? Yeah, and and yeah. and we don't really have. I mean, we can we can mitigate it. We can have best practices, um, but it's just you know it's coming, and you just got to be be ready for it um, to, to deal with it as best you can. And, and at that point, it's not about preventing; it's just about minimizing the number of cases because you're because you're going to have some secondary infections.
1: Norovirus seems like the bad one.
0: Your guys are both always talking about that. Well, you know, norovirus is bad in that it is very difficult to control, and you can have these really rapidly expanding outbreaks. On the other hand, norovirus is very very unlikely to be fatal. And so are we more worried about norovirus than we are about botulism? Well gosh, if you get botulism, you're you're going down, right? More than likely or something like salmonella which is maybe um, less, uh, less on a per case fatality rate is less than botulism, but but on a uh, norovirus is, is maybe more. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, it it all depends upon upon the organism. So yeah, norovirus you're going to have bad outbreaks, but probably not a lot of deaths unless you already have a weakened immune system and you're already you know uh, not not in good health anyway. And it may just be the the diarrhea and the dehydration from the diarrhea that kills you. So, you know, it it all it all depends upon what it is that you're what measuring? Are you talking about, you know, ultimately long-term serious consequences? Like there's some Ben was talking about Campylobacter before. There's some very long-term serious consequences from Campylobacter. Whereas norovirus, yeah, you feel like crap and you may make other people sick, but chances are within a day or two or a week you're gonna be pretty much fully recovered.
2: And and for for us, Dan, we you know, when we work with restaurants or anybody in the in the food industry on these things, they You know, an outbreak to them is an outbreak when it comes to uh, publicity. But a norovirus outbreak versus a salmonella outbreak, a norovirus outbreak, it's really hard for a business or for a lawyer or for a victim to sort of say, you know what? I know that my uh, client got sick from norovirus that was linked to something that you did. It really could be that someone brought it into that um, you know, had a vomit event in, in, in the seating area, and there's no, not a lot that that restaurant could do. Mm. Um, but when it comes to salmonella or when it comes to some of these other pathogens, it's very often linked direct you know directly to either some food that came in or something that, um, that that happened. And so there's a lot of norovirus. And in fact, actually just over the weekend there was I think it was 80 people got sick at a chipotle in California for, and that suspected norovirus. We see tons of these outbreaks, but the cost to the industry or the cost, and which, which often drives some of the risk management decisions, it's not quite the same as it would be if, if they had, you know, 30 people sick from salmonella. Um, and so that, I mean, it, it, it all kind of, there's this public health st- side of things. There's a business decision side of things. Um, and then there's this communication piece of wh- what does that mean to Chipotle's brand or that specific one? You know, the cost of having a norovirus outbreak there is is, is going to be different um, than it might be for for some other
1: um, for some other business. Yeah. And, so,
2: and so we, I mean, it's, there's a lot of complexity around them.
1: So all of this stuff is complex. All of this stuff is complicated and. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like it only really became an issue for me. Like I said before, when I started to have these school age children come back in, uh, to the house with all this stuff, you know, all this stuff, hoof and mouth disease or whatever it's called, all this stuff that they can bring in, you know, that you don't, you don't want to get, but like, you can't, you can't not get it. You know, I mean, like I, I, it seems like it. Like, I'm not going to go to this extreme. I live in, you know, guys, I live in the real world here. And, it, you know, like, I'm not going to not hug my kids. I'm not going to walk around with a mask on, even though I want to. I'm not going to use, you know, Howard Hughes-style paddles to handle things in right. my own house, even though I want to. But just for the coolness factor. I mean, I don't, like, when people read, you know, I'm well actually, and this is the interesting thing, is that my son uh, is fascinated by Howard Hughes, as I was at his age. And so we're reading Howard Hughes, life in madness. Now as his bedtime book, he chose it. (laughs) He chose it. And, uh, yeah. So we're, you know, it it works because it's of the style that it's written. He falls asleep pretty quick, but it really, you know, it's a fascinating story of, of how OCD and germs and germophobia and all of this stuff kind of becomes a real problem for people. And when they talk to guys like you, who say, well, there's no way to know what it is. There's no way to really prevent anything, and hopefully you don't die. Um, You know, that... People don't like hearing that. We want to think that there's a way to prevent it. But I think a lot of this also, you know, you talked about being healthy. You talked about eating right and having a strong immune system. I've also read articles that have talked about how we as a modern society, we as a modern... uh, you know, gr- group of people living in this world that's overly clean, that we're not doing our own immune systems any favor, that there's something to be said for being exposed to the natural world, being exposed to dirt and climbing in trees and eating, eating things that aren't perfectly uh, prepared and cooked and sanitized. And I wanted to hear what you guys thought about that whole uh, I
0: don't know if it's a movement per se, but that that whole argument. Yeah, so I, I'll take I'll take the first crack, and I guess the the, the first I I do want to talk about though, um, this idea that you know you, that that uh, well not not so much OCD because I'm not an expert on it, but um, right. this this whole idea of that you that you know my message is that it's complicated, and that's not a reassuring message, and and I, and I agree, and I always try to be sensitive to people who I think might you know, have have those concerns about germs. And I think that the key message there is risk reduction, right? So yes, there there is no absolute guarantee of safety, just like there's no absolute guarantee of safety when you drive a car. But guess what? When you go into a car, you put on a seat a seatbelt. When you when you buy a car, many people will buy a modern car with airbags. You yes. make sure your kids fasten their seatbelt when they're in the car. You minimize distractions. You you don't text and drive, right? So there's all these things that we can do. You, you know, you drive you safely.
2: You have a license where you mm-hmm. where you have some sort of you know training or certification that you're able to operate that automobile,
0: right? And, and and so it's about it's about risk reduction, right? So it's about it's about not, there's no guarantee of safety, but there are best practices. And so let's let's talk about best practices now. In terms of the the idea that exposure to germs, and I think that there is scientific evidence that says exposure to germs definitely can can help us right uh, it stimulates the immune system the problem is we we definitely don't want to go back to a world where um, most kids didn't live to adulthood because right. of illnesses right, right. and and, right. You, and you see people that are concerned about uh, vaccinations and not vaccinating their kids and look at what that's doing to public health right we're having measles outbreaks that we never used to have before because of this uh, herd immunity which basically says if you get enough people in the herd enough people in the population to be, um, um, immune to the, to this particular illness, then we will control it. And so, yeah, but you know, so it's a complicated world that we live in and people are making choices and sometimes they're making good choices. Sometimes they're, they're making bad choices, but, uh, you know, and, and the, the short answer is we just really don't know. We, yeah, certainly we would love for people to be exposed to to germs so they don't get sick later. Well, the way mm-hmm. that the modern way we do that is with vaccinations. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's complicated. I hate to keep coming back to that, but it's, it's complicated. Well, we should, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: No, I was just, just going to say that I have like this, one of my favorite papers, because, you know, in acad- academia, where we have these things, yeah, one papers. of the things, yeah, papers and Business favorites. papers. Yeah. We got, ba- we got, we got documents. We got the <laughs> the Johnson file. Um, <laughs> we, um but there's there's this thing that this research study that was done in Ontario back in Canada where where I'm from back uh, almost 20 years ago actually it was probably done 20 years ago It was published 19 years ago that looked at E. coli infections in dairy farm families, mm-hmm. and it, and it goes to this concept of what you know what what you brought up, Dan, this this idea of the hygiene hypothesis, that um, farming families are are less likely to um, be susceptible to certain types of pathogens, why is that? And so this, this work really looked at, well, let's see what their immunity is like. And the epidemiologists, the people that study disease that looked at this basically said, kids that grow up on farms, they're exposed to a lot more pathogens, E. coli specifically. They get sick when they're young and they get over it and then they have these antibodies And you can expose them over time to similar looking E. coli pathogens, and they're less likely to get sick because of that. But as, you know, as as kind of Don alluded to, the cost of that is maybe it's and this is just total, you know, guessing, maybe it's one in a hundred thousand, or maybe it's one in ten thousand, or maybe it's one in a million kids that when they're exposed to this pathogen when they're really young, they just don't make it. You know, that they do get really sick and they die. But the rest of, of, of the group around them can, um, you know, survive uh, uh, this this exposure. And where we're kind of at in the food safety world is we we want to reduce that likelihood that that any of the food that's going out there contains that pathogen to that one in ten thousand or one in hundred thousand, whatever. Right. Kids tend to, to die, um, but there's there's it's all trade offs. It's all like. We could have exposure to different things, if but we would have more young illnesses, and and so we're we're constantly in in a flux of trying to figure out, make decisions on
1: tradeoffs. It's all about the tradeoffs. I, I I, okay, so I back to maybe we could talk about this beef jerky.
0: I really want to talk about beef jerky, Dan.
1: I do too, and I I was debating should we talk about the brain eating amoeba there's a someone else has died from this now like a star athlete like a kid going into high school but i feel like i i feel like you guys you guys cover that kind of stuff all the time that's old hat for this for this show and you've got me here so maybe we talk about the the beef jerky disaster.
0: Well, yes. and, yeah, and so here's the thing, like we could talk about Nagleria fowleri because who doesn't want to talk about brain eating amoeba, but we're it's probably... So it's a tragic story. It's so sad. We're probably not going to really help as many people, I think, as if we talked about beef jerky. Beef jerky, true,
1: true. But that's I just for the record, that's a sad, a sad thing. And I, I do use, as I'm getting over the cold, I will use the neti pot and I use distilled, distilled water that I get from a trusted source. Excellent. Good. Well done. Uh, and it, when, if I run out of the distilled water, I read that you need to boil the water. You can use, I would never use tap water. I use filtered water and then I boil it. It said if I boil it for 60 seconds, that it should kill everything. So I boil it for 10 minutes. And okay. I feel like that, it may be still inadequate, but I'll, we'll use that in a pinch.
0: Well, right. Risk risk management, risk reduction, I think you're, you're on the right track. And, and, and so far, I'm okay. Mostly don't s- swim in stagnant bodies of water. I just won't swim, period. <laughs> I'll make that as my compromise.
1: There you go. Well done. Um, so so here's the story. Here's the tr- story of how Ben ruined a big chunk of my life. <laughs>
2: I'm, I look uh, forward to this. I want to know, know your side of things, Dan. Uh, Dan.
1: <laughs> I, w- I guess this is back probably about, let's say, it was n- at least five but probably closer to about six years ago. I got really interested in beef jerky, starting to make my own beef jerky at home. I bought a dehydrator. From Amazon. It was the number one rated dehy- dehydrator you could get on Amazon. And I, I don't think I should call out the brand, the manufacturer, anything like that. Because I don't want to get them in trouble with the CDC or anything or with Amazon. The dehydrator is shaped, is and they still make it. You can still buy it right here online. I'm looking at it right now. They sell it. And it has sort of like, it has like, a, uh, it has like a base. And then it has these stacking discs that you, you put on top of the base. You stack them up. And then on top, that's where the, I guess, the, the dials and the brains of it are. And what you do is you put whatever food it is that you want to dehydrate onto these stacking discs. And then you turn the top part of it, the knob, you turn to... I guess the duration, time, whatever. It's not very scientific, really. But inside, it comes with instructions. And the instructions tell you, if you are going to be dehydrating you know, fruit, use this setting for this amount of time. If you're going to be making beef jerky, here's some marinade recipes. Marinate your beef this way, and then use this setting, and you'll have some amazing beef jerky. Well, I'm very much into the whole marinating thing. So I had a marinade that was just amazing that I had developed over m- many months of regular testing, trial and error. And then I would marinate the beef and I would put the strips in the thing following the directions and I would get this amazing beef jerky that was better tasting and then, and then I, sw- I went to like a grass-fed, good luck finding grass-fed, at least five years ago, grass-fed beef jerky. You couldn't. Now there are some, but it's still ungodly expensive. And it's not as good as what I was making, to be honest with
2: you. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me break in on this. Yeah. With your marination step, yeah. tell us about how you were doing that. So you got your beef. You got your grass-fed beef. First of all,
1: I will never divulge <laughs> my secret recipe. What right. I can I w- I'm do- not asking for that. What I can do is I can give you some of the ingredients that are consequential to what I believe you're leading up to And that. Was, was I making like a—what's the way you get the, the, you get the fish and it's, it's like the citrus juices cooked— Ceviche. Ceviche, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was I doing a sort of ceviche in the marinade? That's possible. I will tell you at the time—now I would use tamari because I'm gluten-free now but back then it was soy sauce. I was using that. I was definitely, there was salt in it. You could, you could even describe the marinade as salty, but to, if you were to taste it before putting meat in, of course. Um, so I, there was salt involved. Sometimes maybe there would be a little, something like a lemon juice might go in there. I'm just saying sometimes, but there was lots of salt. There was lots of soy. The marinating could go on sometimes overnight, extended periods of time. The beef would already be cut into the small pieces and strips, so it would be getting fully uh, coated, if you will. And the, the fluid going through the beef as much as could happen in a 24-hour time period, if that's, in fact, how long I was marinating for.
2: And what? were you marinating that under refrigeration?
1: Yes. Okay. I was what? not doing the preparation of the beef under refrigeration, no. Oh, no. but only because my kitchen isn't big
0: <laughs> Would would it? I mean, I I would be willing, Dan, to sign an NDA. I mean, that yeah. is how bad I want to yeah. know your beef jerky recipe. Just just I'm just putting that out there. I mean, we could do it, but we're recording this. It's going out. But I will. <laughs> no, but, but yes, on the uh, download
1: between us. If you wanted to test it, yeah, I would. Okay, Very I would good. share that with you. Uh, but, but I, I won't. I won't, that won't share it with the listeners. No. There there would be like an like olive oil might have been involved, soy sauce. There might be some. Other household things, there might even be mustard or mustard seeds, you know, with that kind of thing. You Spice might get a little is, spices, yeah. onion powders, garlic, maybe fresh garlic being mixed in. Common household things that you would... If you could imagine flavors that would be copacetic with a, a delicious steak or a, an Asian-inspired steak noodle dish or something like that, these are all the kinds of things that I would be using. But the primary ingredients, of course would definitely be things like uh, soy sauce, Worcestershire sauce, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. Maybe even teriyaki. That might have happened in there. But anyway, I would do this. I would marinate it. Then I would take this out. I would lay the strips on and I would, I would run it in there and it would be running, 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 sometimes for a long, long time to get it to where I would want it to be. Take it out. You eat that. You're blown away by this. You, people would look at me when they would taste this And they would say, this is the best beef jerky I've ever had in my whole life. And I would say, tell me about it. Of course, this is the best. I'm telling you, it's the best. I ate it. My wife ate it. Friends and family would gather around the dehydrator in anticipation to just get a, a little bite of it if I was willing to share it with them. My child was fed the beef jerky in the most, uh, you know, most vulnerable person in the world. My own child ate it. We never got sick. Maybe we got lucky. We never got sick, never had any problems at all. Then Ben comes into the picture. Ben finds out about this and says, you're, you're literally trying to kill everyone. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, this is the most barbaric practice I've ever heard. He says, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're feeding us to people you care about, let alone enemies. And you need to stop doing this immediately. This is, it's unsafe. The beef is not getting cooked. In fact, you're s- spreading around whatever germs will be in the beef. You're cross-contaminating everything else that you're dehydrating. So if one piece of beef had it and another piece didn't, you're making sure that all the beef had it. You're spreading it around. And I said, what are you talking about? It's a dehydrator. It has beef instructions in it. Ben said, I don't care what it says. You're at risk to do this. I said, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? He said, well... That beef needs to be heated to 160 degrees in order to, and we got into, I remember, Ben, we got into a lot of conversation about it's the outside of the beef. So if you have a steak, how can I eat a steak rare? How can I eat a steak medium rare, whatever? He was careful to explain to me this. As long as the parts that came in contact with the world have been heated and, and, you know, seared, in other words, to then the inside of the steak can be however you want it to be. He says, unless you're getting that terrible injected beef. I said, no, no injected beef. This is not like that. But I can eat my steaks. Medium Mary says, that's how I want it. That's how I eat it. Rare, I said, even. Yeah, rare. rare. And, he, and he said, well, and then I said, well, what about what about uh, hamburgers? He's, whoa, ho, ho, ho. different story, 160 degrees. I said, what are you talking about? He says, when I order my hamburgers in a restaurant, I don't say medium, I don't say rare, I don't say well done. I say, could you please heat it to 160 degrees? And then I sit back in my chair, I interlace my fingers behind my head, kick my feet up, and i give them that look. And I know that they're going to temp it back there 160 degrees. I don't care if it's pink. I don't care if it's gray. I don't care if it's plaid. That thing needs to come back 160 degrees or I won't eat it. And I said, okay. He said I could cook the beef jerky. I could cook, pre-cook the beef jerky. To get it to 160 degrees. I said, This sounds nuts. I wasted a whole thing of beef jerky because I tried to find different ways to heat it. I tried heating it, I tried marinating it and then co- cooking it in the oven and then drying it. I tried drying it and then cooking it. I tried boiling it in a, a marinade kind of a thing. All of these things made the worst beef jerky I've ever had in my whole life. And then I asked Ben the question I said, Ben, how are the commercial people doing it? And he says, well, they have commercial dehydrator. I said, well, how is that different from the dehydrator I, that I have? He says, I don't know, but it's not what you have. You're not doing it right. Because at no point are you doing whatever the thing is that you need to be doing to make this beef jerky in a safe way. I said, okay, well how come they're able to sell this and like on the websites for these things that they're selling, they're actually saying this is great for make, make, beef, make beef jerky at home. And so I haven't—of course I'm not going to make beef jerky if Ben says I am doing it wrong because he's a, you know, CDC guy, North Carolina CDC guy. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go against that. The science, Science backs him up. So I trust science. I come from a long line of people who are in science. So I can't walk away from science. But I want, I want to get my beef jerky back, and my wife immediately ra- is rallying against Ben.
2: She hates me, I hear.
1: Well, hate is a strong word, and okay. she's not a hateful kind of a person. Just dislikes me. It dislikes there, my recommendations. She she hates your recommendations, and she, yes. you're not going to listen to this this, this. this let this CDC person step in and take away our our one joy in this world. And I said, well, yes, I am. She says, how? Cause she's not going to try and make it. She doesn't get marinades. I've never shared the ingredients with her. She can't do it. And so here we are years go by and now we're, we're like, uh, like morons. We're going and buying grass fed, you know, beef jerky from the stores. Like, you know, like common people when we know that I could make it myself and it'd be better.
2: So there, there is one, one other suggestion that I gave you that I don't know if you ever investigated, which was searing the outside, getting a nice thick piece of steak, searing the outside of it, sanitizing your knife, cutting that sear off. So you essentially have just the internal side of the steak and then uh-huh. using that for your beef jerky starter.
1: I mean, I, I, w- I could do that. I and you're do losing, that. you're losing meat. You're yeah, losing, yeah. But then I could eat that as like a little side sake. No, I did try that. Did it work? <laughs> I know I told you that it could, it might work. Did it? The problem that I had, it, first of all, I had a couple problems. I did try this. I got, you know, it's hard to get because what they give you if you go to like we don't have like a, a full on like butcher. We're going to get it from a, a place like a Whole Foods. Right. And there's different kinds of, um, of meat to make beef jerky. You, there, you know, they, there are different kinds of people who will say, oh, well, you know, you want to use such and such a, a kind of a, you know, kind of a cut. But here's the secret. I don't even, I can't even believe what I'm going to tell you. Yes. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> believe it.
2: I'm excited. I'm like I'm literally leaning into my microphone oh, now because I, I don't know why, but
1: I'm in. I mean, peop, there are people who are going to come in and say, "Oh, you could, you got to use a you know a bottom round." There's people who say, "I of round is the is the best cut." Let's just say, "Oh, there's people who come in a wall. You got to use London broil." I mean, there's there's lots of strong opinions on what you use. Let's just say that you're using a flank steak. A flank steak. Okay. Okay you want to freeze I can't believe I'm going to talk tell this on the air you want to freeze the steak so that when you take it out you can that's how you get it into the the pe- the pieces at the right size you can't cut it at room temperature you got to cut it while it's still frozen so co- searing the outside of it and then putting it in for a few hours to freeze it it doesn't, it just doesn't work that well. It doesn't work into that, like that. And then. Wow. But anyway, then you, wanna, then you want to, then you want to brine it. And so like, what order am I doing? Am I just searing it? But
0: I, it's just I, not. Well, now, now, Dan, tell me, did you, I think you said you tried this. Did you try cooking it to 160 um before you put it into the dehydrator yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work doesn't work it's yeah, not the it's quality's not good. not good it's not good and
2: okay. then you tried to heat it afterwards too and that was also not good
0: no not good
2: I mean you get it's it gets more it's a tougher you get more it you know it dries out more
1: I mean it's yeah a, it's more like a leather if your goal is to make something that's leather like really impossible to eat and just you sort of <laughs> just want to suck on it or something yeah that that works fine the flavor is still there but it takes away everything that's good because you know, you want – you for a good beef jerky, you want to have something that's a – you want to be sort of a little bit chewy but not really chewy. You want to get, you know, it, more tender than chewy, if anything. You don't want to struggle with it. You don't want grizzle. You don't want to be fighting it. You don't want to have your teeth hurt. I'm 42. And you don't want it to crack. No. And that that's that's the thing. That's where – yeah. So
2: we have – so so, Don and I have been talking over the over the interwebs about this, and we we want to try this we want we want to design some science around figuring out whether we can validate your recipe mm. or a recipe like yours mm-hmm. that might not have all the right full ingredients um in it, but nothing that uh Um, that'll, that'll change things too much because we, I, I I feel bad. I feel bad about how I've ruined the, the world of jerky for you and your family. Um, and, and the, I, I, I feel, I feel like I owe it to you. I owe it to the listeners. I mean, I, I just owe it to the,
1: to the jerky lovers. Okay. I I don't want you to feel too bad about it. I mean, it's, it's a big deal, but I don't want you to like lose sleep over it. Okay. Okay, if I was going to get, let me throw out, I'm going to throw out, uh, so before the show, I prepared what I would say a, a very basic, basic beef jerky recipe that I will, could throw out there that will give you about, let's say 20 to 25 strips. So you're going to get, you're going to get about two pounds of, uh, of beef. Whether you want to go with a flank steak, whether you want to go with eye of round, whether you want to go with a, you know, whatever it is you want to go with. I want to go with what you want to go with. I mean, do a, flank, said, do a sounded, flank
2: steak. Yeah, that's that sounded weird, but that's what
1: no. we want to. I want to know. I, I want Okay, get two pounds of that. Get a quarter cup of soy sauce or tamari if you are uh, if you're gluten sensitive. Uh, you go with like a tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce. And and here's where you get to mix things up. You can do some pepper. You can do some uh, onion powder. You want to mix in garlic powder. You could do that. You want to put in a few... You want it to get like a little spicy. You could put in some uh, like hot peppers, you know, the little, the little different kinds of... Pep- uh, the, the, the bigger peppers. I don't know what you call those. You know, the kind of the red peppers. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. And then uh, you can put some of that in. You want to put in at this point, you feel a little fancy, you can do a little teriyaki sauce. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do. You know, I've seen people who put mustard seeds in there. I've seen people put mustard, straight up mustard and even ketchup in there just a little bit. I've seen all kinds of stuff go in there just to mix it up a little bit. You want to, you want to, oh, oh, you like Korean food. Great. Put a little ginger in there. (laughs) You know, that's a secret. You throw a little ginger in there, not candied ginger. Just, just, yeah, just some some ginger, just some shred it in there. Yeah. The more fresh your ingredient, you want to you want to get really fancy. You can put, uh, you can put like fresh garlic, really, really diced, finely diced up in there. That'll be really nice if you like that. Uh, you've got to have liquid smoke, okay. And do not you be tempted. Oh, I like really smoky taste. Don't put in more than a teaspoon. Trust me on this. A teaspoon is all you need. I like the hickory, but there are other kinds of smoke that you can, liquid smoke that you can test.
2: There's a mesquite. I've had a, mes- I've yes. had a, mes- a very nice mesquite.
1: Yes, there are people who would commend you for that. I like the hickory, doesn't matter. Um, and then you want to put in, now you can put in salt. There's something called a curing salt. Have you heard of curing salt? I, I have heard
2: of, yes, I, I'm aware of curing salt. I believe it, it is it, now, are we talking a a pink salt?
1: Yeah, that's the pink.
2: that's that's the pink.
1: Yeah. you I, can people will use this to cure a meat. I had always it my understanding is curing salt is a combination of table salt and sodium nitrate, nitrite. And that the sodium nitrite is supposed to inhibit the growth of bacteria and keep you from getting botulism. I don't know if that's true. I don't think it's... Anyway, I'll let you guys work through that. Okay, okay. My understanding was that the brine, this, this marinade with all the salt in it, you can go way more salt than that, but with the combination of the salt and the soy sauce, I always thought it was destroying whatever bacteria or, or, or stuff was in there. I thought this was getting rid of it so that once you did that to it, because I've eaten steak tartare in a restaurant, I was fine. So I thought this is way more than that. This is way more than that. So it can't. It you got to be all right.
0: Well, but and and, not. and those not. well, and those those things help, Dan, but they're but they're not. Uh, uh, like a like a rock solid guarantee and again you can eat steak tartare and most of the time you'll be fine but w- the problem is is that you need there's a that's a probability game right and and uh, and the, and that the key and e- even even doing beef jerky correctly is still a probability game but what we're looking for in the in the parlance of, of food microbiology is we're looking for what we call a six log reduction so that's six logarithms of reduction of the concentration of bacteria. So that's six orders of magnitude. So that's a 99.9999, that's six nines, reduction in the concentration of pathogenic bacteria. And there are validated recipes out there. And the, the key, I think, to all of this is during the first part of the dehydration process is you have to do the first part of the process under wet heat conditions right mm. because if you do if you dry it too fast drying makes the bacteria more resistant to heat. And so you have to do wet heat followed by a dry heat. And, and that I think, and there's a great, there's a great document that we're going to link to in show notes uh, from uh, USDA Food Safety Inspection Service, which is uh, the compliance guideline for meat and poultry jerky produced by small and very small establishments. And, and your kitchen is, is indeed a very, very small establishment, but there's a lot of good scientific information here. Um, a, A lot of it actually written by, uh, Harrison and Harrison, who are a couple of our, our colleagues at the University of Georgia, Georgia that we know very well, so I, I'm confident, Dan, that we have enough science here to uh, to to be able to engineer a safe jerky recipe for you
1: with with a dehydrator that I could
0: get in my in my home. Well, yeah. yes, and that's 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 so. So the 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 thing about this this uh, USDA document is it's designed for commercial establishments. It's not designed for home dehydrators. But I think with the possibility that we might have to buy one of these dehydrators, we might have to drill some holes into the side. We might oh have God. to build a okay. wet bulb thermometer and insert the wet bulb thermometer into the modified dehydrator. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's an engineering project, but I think we can do it.
1: It's so- I, I it's mean, science,
0: science. Listen,
1: I will do a big website with, you know, like beef jerky <laughs> method, like I did for bacon method. And you guys are going to get top billing on the site. I'm telling you, because if you really are willing to help me out this much. Oh, we're there. I mean, I think I, I, I'm flattered that you care so much. I mean, that's wonderful. And I think that we're going to help a lot of people because I think there is this very much, this movement of people wanting, you know, look at the whole, like there people are like brewing beer in their own, like their own garage or something. Like, I, I mean, People want this. They want this. They're dying for this. They want everyone. I'll meet people on the street. We'll talk for a few minutes. And by the end of the conversation, they're like, I, I want to make beef jerky at home. You know, like people want to make it. They want to be able to just feed their 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 families this amazing food. And, uh, and, and I've been telling them that you can't. You can't do it. It can't be done safely.
2: Ben Chapman says you're going to kill everyone.
0: Right.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, we're we're
0: we're here we're, to help. We're committed, <laughs> um, but but just remember: uh, quick, cheap, and done right. You get to pick two. Um, we're we're doing this on a shoestring budget, and we want to do it right. Which means that, again, don't look for don't look for a solution tomorrow or even next week. But we're on it, and we're going to work away at it as much as we can to to get this to get this problem solved.
2: And we need to know the dehydrator that you ah uh, yes you yes use. i, I dem- will i
1: now do you need the same size dehydrator that i'm going to be using or could you guys since you're just going to blow it up anyway could you use a small
0: one well ideally and the, this is the problem with validating consumer recipes is yeah. ideally any work that we do dan would only be relevant for your specific dehydrator and oh. so now, there's a possibility that what we discover, the science that we do, will be generalizable to other models of dehydrators. But I'm not an expert on dehydrators. And so yeah. my preference would be to get the exact same model that right. you have. And then to because because honestly, yes, we want to help the world. But we're going to help the world basically by helping you specifically, right? And right. so we're going to start with that model dehydrator. Um, and then we're going to maybe extrapolate from there.
2: And, okay. and we need... The other thing with that is we need the settings that you use because the, the dehydrators, that the ones that I am familiar with, have different types of options of what the temperature is I'm going to set the dehydration to. And some of them, and I don't know if this is one that you use, will also allow you to set um, the relative humidity um, starting Interesting. points. So, Interesting. so So give us... Give us all the stuff, all of yeah. your particulars, and we will not, uh, will not share it until the uh, launch of, uh, of uh, Beef Jerky
1: website. Now, I'll tell you what. I am willing to do something even, even more different to show you how much I trust you guys and how serious I am about this. <laughs> I would be willing to go a completely different direction and say, uh, you know what? You tell me of the available dehydrators mm-hmm. that I could get it for, for use in a home, you tell me which one seems like it's the best one to do this health in a healthy way.
0: I will get that one. We could both get that one. Well, and, and that's a really good point. And I'm, so I'm, right now I'm looking at, um, like, the number one bestseller in dehydrators on Amazon. And I see yeah. that it has this Is particular one. Is it or the... Um, the Nesco. 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 Okay. And, and it has, it has temperatures um, yeah, in, in both Fahrenheit and degrees C, so yay. Um, but I don't see a way to set relative humidity. Now, Now Ben, are you, you said you I, mentioned... Ha- it?
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I'll have to look it up. And I don't even know where it came from. We have one that has relative humidity. Yeah. It might be this Wearing Pro professional dehydrator.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that might be it.
2: There's one, there there are some out there.
0: Right, and, and so I would say it would be better to have one that would control relative humidity, especially yeah. if it actually works. No,
1: I, I know that you're talking about the Wearing Pro DHR30, right? I
0: think so, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's fine. I'll get that. There's also this other one, which is amazing. It's very expensive. Uh, and it, it's like a, it's, it's called the Excalibur, the
2: Excalibur.
1: and it is a ni- it has nine trays and it's stainless steel on the outside and that you can get steel trays for it. And it's very expensive oh, there it is. and it's really loud. And like, it's, it's <laughs> like everything you don't want in your own home kitchen, unless you're like real serious about making this. But you know, like I thought you were going to tell me I had to go with the x caliber or something like that. But that has like, it has a, a thermostat that lets you ch- control everything. It has uh, all, all the, and it says, and this is the one thing that I thought was why I thought you were going to tell me, it says it has a high enough temperature to meet safety standards for dehydrating meat for jerky. And that's why I thought you guys were going to tell me. i like, I have to spend $500 on a, uh, on this thing. We, we, we don't know. <laughs> you t- but you tell me what, how about this? You tell me which one to get as long as it's, you know, not the $500 one. Yeah. And I'll get the one you tell me and then, you know, then we can make something out of this and make it like a real, this would be a big business, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, this will be, I mean, this
1: is our next venture. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. This me is, too. This is going to be awesome. It is awesome. And, and, you know, you guys are awesome for having me on the show. I
0: appreciate it. Thank you. Oh Well, you're awesome for taking the time to come and be on the show, Dan. We really appreciate it.
2: And, awesome. And, and this is, I mean, just to, to circle back to what we started about, this is why we do the show. Not not just to help you out with with your jerky stuff, but that there are questions out there that are not easily answered by a fact sheet that we Don and I like to talk about and we like to come up with ways to hash out how we would approach it and and that kind of stuff and and so th- I'm, there's other jerky type questions out there that I, that I think that we always like to hear from from our listeners about um and and if we get really into it and passionate maybe we'll we'll answer some more of these these types of things for
1: for others. Well cool. Well I want, you know, and we'll put this out and I think in in if if you and I are able to sort of mend the the damage that was was done here, I you think, know, I I think like the healing's begun. Yeah, healing, yeah.
2: I've, I we, I think we're just virtually hugging it out right now. Yeah, we
1: are. That's, Feels awesome.
2: I know it does. You're <laughs> you're a lot you're a lot warmer than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> I, I run
1: about ninety eight point uh, four.
2: But not yeah yeah. I, that's what I'm. That's what my thermostat's uh, telling me. <laughs> that's,
1: well, I'm going to go. I'm actually going to eat some lunch. I was going to have sushi, but now I'm not. I'll get something, whatever it is,
0: cooked to 160 degrees. Really
2: hot. Get something yeah. hot. Yeah. yeah,
0: Well, thanks for <laughs>
2: thanks for coming on, Dan. Thanks, we so,
0: really thanks so much, Dan. Thank we really you guys. appreciate it.